0: Corrections and bear markets. And now on to our lead lag live discussion, hosted by Michael Gaiad.
1: My name is Michael Gayad, publisher of the Lead Lag Report. Joining me today with Tom Basso, Mr. Serenity, apparently himself, given what <laughs> he said on his, his new book. Tom, first time you and I are chatting, but introduce yourself to the audience. Who are you? What's your background? I get involved in student markets, and are you really that calm?
2: (laughs) Yeah, I I take trading a little bit with a grain of salt compared to a lot of the completely wired Wall Street types. I came from an engineering background. I've got a chemical engineering degree, and I just approach trading as if it's more like uh, data processing. And so just the same way you would bring in you know, as a chemical engineer, you'd bring in chemicals, you'd process them, you'd ship them out. That's kind of process engineering 101 in chemical engineering school. I saw Trendstat back in the day, and I still do see the same thing when I'm managing my own money. As data comes in, I process it, I ship out orders. It's kind of the same thing. And you try to make everything very efficient, you try to clean up your data as, as good as you can. You try to speed things up with faster computers and optimize things to try to make them more refined and more able to do the types of things that you want them to do. And then you run it and you run it, you try to execute it flawlessly every day without making a single mistake. And that doesn't strike me as being a stress a stretched out environment for me, at least, is that engineering degree. I've been with computers all my life. It's pretty easy for me to to hit the buttons and start the process. And, you know, there's always those mental side things that can creep in because even if you're automated, you could always choose not to run it, choose to override it, choose to, you know, second guess it. Lots and lots of mental issues there, but I've been pretty good at mastering my own emotions and Trying to stay even keeled through this process after about fifty years of doing it. I probably should have figured out a few things, I guess. So yeah, I'm pretty calm. Did you manage money for other individuals, happily managed accounts? Yeah, I ran TrentSat Capital and owned it for 28 years. So we uh, at our peak, I think we had about six hundred million under management. Large part of it was in Forex, about another hundred million or so was in futures. And then we had some mutual fund timing and I've traded stock portfolios before that. We shut that down because I think stocks were starting to get a little more risky as individual issues. And so I buried some of that corporate risk inside of ETFs in the current world. And I still to this day don't trade individual stocks. I trade ETFs. It's just a lot easier for me in retirement.
1: Okay, so I mentioned that because you and I both know that we can be calm and believe in serenity, but inclines, not so much. It's so. It's when you're managing other people's <laughs> yeah. money, it's a whole different dynamic than managing your own, right? Because you can be the calmest, you know, most highly convinced person of what's going to happen next. But, you know, you got to deal with client calls. So uh, how did you yeah. manage sort of your own, for lack of a way of saying it's sanity in terms of, yeah, you know, being <laughs> that, you know, that sort of engineer mindset of just, you know, it's a process. You go through it versus clients that might be, you know, let's face it, yelling and screaming at any moment. Well, at I
2: time. tried my best. I I actually wrote a book called Panic Proof Investing that Wiley picked up and went with it. And I was able to hand out one of those to every client coming in the door at Trendstat in the hopes that they would read it and become a better client so that I could become a better money manager because my managers are always on the ultimate short leash because it is the client's money, not the money managers. And they have the ultimate ability to fire you. So you, you know, they're going to ask questions that will have you scratching your head and wondering what the heck are they asking that for? And that's a really stupid question and you'll answer it. And then a year later, they'll ask you the same question all over again. You'll give the same answer all over again. And you kind of, you know, you're scratching your head and wondering what the heck, this is a crazy business. And so I wrote Panic Proof Investing in the hopes that people would get better at asking me good questions instead of dumb questions. And it turns out that never happened. And so one of the things that happened when I retired from the business, and closed down Trendstat, was I put a smile on my face and it's been there ever since. And I have no desire to go back and manage other people's monies. I think it's a crazy business. You can make a lot of money at it. And I did. But and I guess that's a good goal and I guess a good a good thing to have happened to you. So I don't regret anything, but I don't miss it.
1: I don't miss it and I'm still doing it. <laughs> I think it's hard for people to understand the business side of investing versus just the investing side and how do you stand out in a very... Well,
2: what, Michael, when you talked about sanity, what I had to do sooner or later, you know, along the way, I had to just be convinced that my average client didn't know what they were doing or they'd be managing their own money And you almost start treating them like a parent-child relationship or something. And you just, you know, you're calm and you kind of listen to what they say and you nod and then you say the same thing over and over again. And sometimes they believe it and sometimes they don't and fire you. And you don't let it stop you. You just keep going. And that's how you control your sanity, I think. I, I had to do that somewhere along the way. And then it became a lot easier. You just went ahead and... You kept raising assets and you keep listening to crazy questions and you keep answering them, and that's part of the business. All right. So I named this phase the all weather trader, becoming the all weather trader,
1: consistent with your book title. You and I both know the term all weather is very specific as a strategy in terms of asset allocation. Risk parity is a variation of all weather. But define for the audience what for you being an all weather trader means.
2: It really just means to me that I'm attempting to. Produce a profit no matter what happens in the market. So that every day, if I come in and there's another COVID crash or there's a war breaking out or an oil incident that causes all the markets in the world to go crazy, I've already got a plan in place to exploit that and to attack that risk and to actually maybe even make money doing it. And so, stock market going up, stock market going down makes no difference to me. It's the same day I come in, run the same stuff. I have nine different strategies, four different time periods, about five different indicators I use, about 60 maximum total instruments in my portfolio, and a lot of it is automated. Uh, probably all but three now, I guess, I've gotten to the point where I can run them every day without having to do a lot of heavy strain to the brain, but, you know, I've I got them when you have a longer-term trend following in futures, let's say, and then you have a short-term one, I can have days where I'm long in one, I'm short in the other, I don't have a position. And so I, when I get into sideways markets, a lot of times the various time periods will start contradicting each other and, and it'll just take me out of the market or I'll become sort of hedged if you want to look at it that way. But when they finally unwind and agree with each other, that's where the money really gets made. And that requires a strong move in one direction and all the indicators line up and all the strategies line up and all of a sudden, you know, the money really starts flowing. But that might happen just a few weeks out of a quarter. So you have to be patient, deal with your own impatience and just run it every day and look for those opportunities when the market presents themselves.
1: So when you say, I think I heard you say, the amount of approaches automated you do for your current portfolio is is you have a portion that you're just doing more on a discretionary basis based on your own thoughts or how do you sort of weight the automated versus discretionary side, if at all?
2: I use my discretion in creating another strategy. So what I'll look at is where my drawdowns are A good example, a drawdown for a trend follower like me that I I generally, most people would think of me as, you know, I'm looking at sideways markets and trying to develop ways of making money during sideways movements where there's not going to be a lot of trends. So therefore, trend following is going to get whipsawed some. So I do a credit spread using index options. And I just keep putting those on, never more than a week at a crack, so not a lot of time left on the option, and I just keep collecting, you know, pennies here and pennies there, and it sort of offsets some of those whipsaw losses. I look for other things that can help me during those periods, because that seems to be where my largest drawdowns are, and I'm always working to try to get that equity curve to be a nice straight line going up the page, which I haven't ever achieved yet, but I keep trying. But in fairness, I think only one person's ever
1: achieved that, and his name is Madoff. I don't think no but but actually this is an important point because yeah, I, I do think people assume that when they look at the chart and there's a trend line that it's you know very smooth, forty five degrees and it's just printing consistently. But the reality is it's very windy and there's all kinds of mini drawdowns and even crashes in the context of a broader bull market. So unless you actually live that dynamic day to day and you have a strategy which you're you know living that through, it's hard for people to I think to have the proper perspective on. Them. We'll be back after a quick break. Hello, listeners. Michael Gaia here from Lead Lag Live. Are you ready to take a deep dive into market trends, risk management, and investment strategies? Then you need the Lead Lag Report. Our in depth analysis helps you understand the financial markets like never before. And guess what? We're giving you a chance to experience it at a discounted rate. Visit the leadlagreport leadlaglive and get an exclusive 30% off on your subscription. Don't miss out. Level up your investment game with the lead lag report. And now, back to our discussion.
2: Right. I, you know, I try to keep the drawdowns less than 10%. Unfortunately, I have not achieved that goal either. There's been some that have been bigger than that, but stuff that I can handle while I'm in retirement and that doesn't require, you know, 100% to come back from a 50% drawdown, that is not Where I am. That's not my mentality. That's not my psychology. I want to, you know, if I have a drawdown, I'm okay with it. But, you know, it'd be better if it was 3% rather than 30. And so I try to keep things very balanced and I'm always trying to achieve more and more balance. And so as I try to invent a new strategy, that's where my discretion comes in. And I try to use my creative brain to say, well, what kind of math would exploit this type of condition to create a profit when clearly some of my other math and logic is going to produce a drawdown to try to offset it. And then, you know, you get the simulation programs going, you try to figure out, you know, whether the simulation is feeding back to you what you would have expected it to feed back during that type of environment. I'm not so much concerned over it made X percent and had a drawdown of this, I'm more concerned with where and how did it produce a profit and where and how does it take losses? And are those compatible with my existing suite of strategies so that I'm really adding value by adding, say, a 10th strategy? And so I'll spend sometimes six months trying to really look at a new strategy and try to figure out how to emerge immerse it into the suite of indicators and strategies and then once I go live with that's number 10 and I'm starting to work on number eleven and I think that's been very productive for me and that gets me closer and closer to being pure all weather I still haven't gotten to the point where it's a straight line and I may never in my lifetime but it's been fun and a great brain tease to me as I approach uh, in my 70s now and past 71th first birthday, you know, it's fun for me to have the brain tease of trying to get better, even at my age. So it's that's kind of what I do every now and again when I'm sitting here in front of the computer. So
1: since you mentioned doing test simulations, backtesting, I am curious to hear how you managed through last year, which from all kinds of metrics that I look at was, I'd argue an anomaly. Some people will say perfectly foreseeable. Nothing is ever perfectly foreseeable except with for the hindsight. But how did you manage through last year with the magnitude and sequence interaction of stocks versus bonds?
2: Bonds, I was pretty much short for a lot of it. So made a lot of money there. I don't own any long bonds. I think it's sort of a sucker's game myself. I just don't think that's a great way to go. A personal bias there. On the stock side, it was pretty much a soft year. And with some choppiness, and I think when I figured it all out, I was down a few percentage points for the year. Nothing to write home about.
1: How about how has, have things played out this year? Any sort of major in wholesale shifts?
2: Yeah, this year, early in the year, there was the big orange juice moves and there some coffee moves, lumber moves. There was some bright spots there and made new highs in my equity curve. Now I'm on, right now I'm on a little like, 2.5% drawdown or something, but after having made new highs and up in the teens on the track record. So the last running year has been decent. let talk about, okay, because
1: you mentioned equity curve, but then you obviously mentioned you know, RZ and lumber. So I know what equity curve means. I mean, it's not it's just equity, but what are sort of the typical asset classes that you find you tend to have the best return profile with, right, from a rules-based perspective?
2: Well... You look for stuff that has exceptional ability to move. So even things like crypto futures, they're very volatile, but, you know, the, hey, they move. So as a trader, you're buying low and selling high or selling high and buying low. But if you don't have movement, if it's buying at one price and then the price never moves from there, you can't make any money. than <laughs> that. So you got to look for some volatility. You got to be able to attack the risk of that volatility using whatever technique you decide, whether it be predicting what's going to happen and predicting it correctly or using economic stuff or whether you're using, like I do, price-based indicators that indicate that a trend is shifted and now we're in an uptrend instead of a downtrend, so I should to, you know, cover my short sales and go long. Those types of decisions have to be made routinely. And if you've got 60 different positions, you've got a whole lot of different Games that you're playing in, basically, so some of the ones that can that seem to be yeah, lately having some great runs have been the softs, I would say the sugar is making a good move, you know coffee's had some good moves, orange juice, lumber, all those softs are really coming through cocoa's had some moves, cotton, so a lot of those been where some of the profits have come from right now you got all the metals going up, so gold, silver, platinum, they're all today making new highs on the run. So those are very profitable. And so if you have a stock market, let's say that's sort of going sideways, you're not going to make a lot of money in that type of move as the stock market tries to figure out whether it wants to go up or go down. And there's arguments for both. And everybody's trying to predict what's going to happen in the, fourth quarter and everything. Are we going into a recession? Is the depression coming up? Or, you know, is there going to be a debt bubble bursting and we're all going to get, you know, into the next depression? All of those scenarios seem to me to be possible. And uh, there's arguments for all of them. But rather than try to predict, I simply look at the direction. And right now, the direction's down in terms of my hedges. So on the longer term, stuff that I do with ETFs, I'm down to 16 out of 30 positions long, so almost half the portfolio is is in cash now, and the 55% or whatever it is that I'm long, I am hedged. So I really don't have a whole lot of exposure to the stock market these days, just sitting here waiting for it to sort itself out, and as soon as it does, I'll be either long or short, full bore and trying to make money with it.
1: I feel like we should touch on shorting for a bit. I am very loud in being against shorting. I don't believe that it works over time. I could be proven wrong on that. But yeah, I've done all kinds of back tests that show that the issue with shorting is that, yeah, if you get chopped off in false signals, chopped away with false signals, at some point, your equity curve goes down to almost zero, right? Because you'll always have false signals whenever you have a, a trading strategy. How do you think about shorting in general, given your years of experience in the industry?
2: Well, I would agree with your comment with respect to shorting individual stocks. But if you're shorting either a broad-based index or like I do using the index futures, I've got a broad diversification against any one instrument going against me. I have just the index itself, which, you know, is a little a whole lot more controllable a whole lot more liquid to get in and out and uh, better tax treatment i'm not having to borrow the shares and short them i'm just going to a sell position on a futures contract so when i say short it's a loose term used by futures traders to say that they're they're on a downside position but selling and buying in futures is equal there there is no difference between the two in terms of how easy it is to do it, the tax treatments are the same. And so I usually use the the sell, sell positions in index futures as my short exposure to equities. I don't ever trade individual stocks.
1: What about sector tilting? I mean, last year was a clear example of you know, how uh, rotation in energy would have been a mm-hmm. game right, for a lot of people.
2: Yeah, and I have about three or four of my 30 sectors that are energy related in some way either exploration or services or actual oil production. And I also trade crude oil, trade unleaded gas futures, and I trade the natural gas futures. So I've got a lot of different ways of having energy come into the portfolio. And yeah, when, they were, when we were having some good moves in energy, yeah, that was fun. A little money to be made there. And they all gave me buy signals and I got in on all of them and enjoyed the ride. What are some of the signals that you tend to always
1: kind of turn back to. So I I just had a space with a guy named Cheds, and I make this point with him that, you know, keeping it simple is often the way to go, and there's a lot of things that people refer to as signals but probably are more random than noise. Um, What are some of the things that
2: you incorporate in your own strategy? There's three indicators that I talked about in the all-weather trader that I, I really enjoy using. And they're all widely used. They're all easily available on almost every broker platform. One is Keltner bands. I like them because they're volatility driven in that the larger the volatility that exists in the marketplace, the wider the top and bottom bands around the noise become, giving the market more room to move in a volatile environment. But when things are quiet, The top and bottom lines just squeeze down nicely and you get a more timely signal in that case. And that's appropriate because the market's not exhibiting a lot of volatility. So you want everything to squeeze down. I like that because it's flexible. It doesn't. It's sort of like having an indicator that changes with market condition, which I think is a little bit more robust. Bollinger bands, same type of thing, except they use, Bollinger uses standard deviation instead of the average true range for its measure of volatility. But just like Keltner, it adjusts those top and bottom bands. And then the third is the Donchian channel, sometimes called price channels in many broker platforms. But Mr. Donchian, who I met, who I had a chance to listen to, it had to be 40 years ago or more. When I was just getting in the CTA business, I think it's elegantly simple. You go back a certain number of days, you take the highest high and the lowest low, done. There's your top and bottom lines. It's volatility adjusting because the wider apart those top and bottom points are, the wider your Donchian channel is going to be. And the skinnier the market becomes where it's trying to figure out whether it wants to go up or down and it's going sideways, the tighter your Donchian channel is going to be. So just like Keltner and Bollinger, it's volatility adjusted. I usually like to combine all three, take the first one hit. So if at any point in time, I'm tracking all three of those indicators and Donchian is the first up to be a hit to the upside. I'll take the buy signal off the Donchian. If it happens to be the Keltner, I'll take the buy signal off the Keltner. And if it happens to be Bollinger, I'll do the same there. So. Uh, what ends up happening is I've got this sort of noise band that I like to ignore. I just completely ignore it. Nothing that happens inside that noise band is of interest to me. When it goes through the top line, I like to go long. When it goes through the bottom line, I like to go short and uh, keep things simple.
1: Just to reset the room for the remaining minutes here, please make sure you follow Tom here on X. If any of you want to come up and ask questions, click that bottom left my request button. And as always, this will be in a podcast under Lead Lag Live on all of your favorite platforms. Because you have the experience of being a fiduciary yourself, managing other people's money, you're probably ingrained, as am I, in the idea that you need to diversify. Right? you have got to have limits as far as how much you allocate to a particular position. Do you do that with your own personal portfolio now that you're not managing other people's money? Or is that sort of a truism across the board, whether it's your money or someone
3: else's? We'll be back after a quick break. Foodies unite with How You Dish. It's social media with a secret sauce food. The world's first network for food enthusiasts. How You Dish connects foodies across the world. Share kitchen tips and recipe hacks. Discover hidden gem food joints and street food. Find foodies like you. Connect, chat, and organize meetups. How You Dish makes it simple to connect through food anywhere in the world. So, how do you dish? Download How
2: You Dish on the Apple App Store now. Yeah, actually, Michael, I find it easier to do to my own portfolio than I did with client monies because in the client world, you're, you have a tendency to set up a strategy, be able to describe it to, say, a Merrill Lynch Investment board that you've got to stand there for an hour and describe what you're going to do to them, and they they don't want you varying from that very much because that's sort of style creep, and they don't like that. So you're sort of locked into whatever you design the strategy to do. Where in my own portfolio, I have no investment committee; I have me, and I can sit there and say, you know, this would make a good tenth strategy. I should bring this in because it's going to give me new exposures, and I can blend that in the proper diversification so that I get even more diversification and I balance it all out beautifully and I'm ready to go, right? I don't have anybody to answer to. So it's actually easier for me to be more diversified and to provide my portfolio with what I would call extreme diversification and therefore stabilize my results than I could do it back in the client days when I'm answering to all these investment committees.
1: So as reference, um, there was a conference I was at fifteen twenty years ago. I forget who exactly said it, but the person on stage used this line that diversification is a luxury for the rich <laughs> and uh, which i it always stood out to me as a way of thinking about diversification because you know the reality is most people, if they want to get very wealthy, they have to take outsized risk they have to take concentration risk, whether it's in their portfolio or in their entrepreneurial ventures, for example. do you think that it's possible to unquote Get rich, get wealthy slowly. I know there's a lot of books that are focused on that, but, you know, the reality is, you know, like you kind of alluded to before, right? When you're in the investment industry, you can make a lot of money, even though it's very challenging because you're taking a concentrated risk on your ability to not only raise assets, but keep them.
2: I would say that, you know, there's always that compelling sort of buying a lottery ticket and, you know, get the millions of dollars that a winner gets. And money management business is the same, and so is trying to do your own portfolio and concentrating 20% of your positions in one Nvidia or whatever and having it go home run on you. And, you know, you kind of ice it. A lot of this happened back in the days of the COVID crash and we came out of it. And then there was all these beautiful, uh, for the 20-somethings to go look at this nice check that they just got from the government and open a stock trading account and jump on AMC or whatever. And they, you know, became millionaires. They have no idea what they're doing, but, and they are controlling the risk very well. They're not very diversified, but it is one way to get to the kind of the larger portfolio that you then could perhaps, if you were smart enough, diversify and spread that risk a little bit more and manage your risk more appropriately. I think that, to get rich slowly what I've been trying to advise people, I'll get these emails. I've got this great job, I'm working with my dad's business or whatever, and I want to be a full time trader like you, and do I have enough, or do you know how do I get there and I usually tell them over the short run because they don't have enough money and they're pressing the envelope in terms of the returns they would need to produce to live off of it. I usually say, just work your day job for another few years and sock away as much as you can, and make your account a lot bigger, so that you can do a lot of these other tricks to your portfolio. Then you'll be ready. And I think they appreciate it. I get a lot of people writing me back and saying, "Yeah, okay, I'm gonna, you know, change my mentality and really concentrate on my job for another five years or something, and then I'll have the ability to get there." And I think a lot of people start too quick. They You know, back in the COVID days when everybody's working from home, they can manage their portfolio simultaneously to trying to do their day job because nobody was going to the office. And I think some people did that intelligently and some people just gambled and maybe got lucky along the way. But the reality is I've been doing this 50 years. I've seen so many bear markets with the stocks that I can't even remember them all. It's been over so many decades. and. So I have had to season myself to understand what a drawdown is, how it affects me mentally. How do new highs in your equity affect you? Do you become giddy and you want to go out and buy the fancy car or upgrade your house or whatever? Or do you just sensibly say, hey, you know, I'm at new equity highs. I've been at new equity lows, you know, just a year ago. This is all part of the process. Just stay balanced. Just keep doing what you're doing every day. That seasoning that comes from decades of trading and a lot of, you know, the people that have never really seen a 50 cent on a dollar bear market or an October 19th crash, Black Monday type of thing and live through it. You know, they don't have that seasoning and they've kind of glossed it over. Yeah, they remember that happened, but, you know, they weren't involved in it. So it didn't have much impact on them.
1: Speaking about prior cycles, I've used this line a few times that Yeah, it tells me that a rising tide lifts all boats, and you know when a rising tide doesn't lift all boats, everybody drowns. I would argue. Mm -hmm. I relate that to what's gone on this year in the sense that I keep on attacking this new bull market narrative because when you look at small caps, not a new bull market, emerging markets, not a new bull market. Yes, large caps, you know, look like it, right? But you have to take out the prior high. Is there anything about this cycle which is different that makes it?
2: you know, more unusual to trade through? I'm not sure they answer that exactly. You know, if you look at the 30 sectors, that gives me a VTS that I trade. I get a sense by sector of where the action is and where it clearly is not. And interest rates continue to climb. I I continue to be short on some of the, the debt instruments long term. On a short-term basis, they're trying to rally a little bit. So, you know, kind of a little confused like a lot of markets are lately. And I think that when you try to look at this market going up, I think there's been a lot of people, and including me, if you ask me the question of what do you think the stock market's going to do this year, I would point to all the different economics that I think, are insane and very bearish. Lots of debt, interest rates going up, bond markets not looking really sharp. There's just all sorts of things that are economically wacko. However, if I want to be a good trader, I simply sit there and I look at my three favorite indicators there and these markets are breaking to the upside way back earlier in the year. And so I go long and I end up being long 29 out of 30 sectors making a bunch of money. And they eventually give me sell signals and I get out of them with small profits. And I've traded my future side and there's been some good moves there. And you just don't worry about what the economy is doing because you're in and out of this stuff all over the place. You're a trader. And I try to separate those two parts of my brain, my economics and my citizen of the United States and a citizen of the world, basically, and the economies of the worlds and the politics of the world and all that stuff. That's all interesting and good and fine. But that's not what I call trading. That's called predicting. And it's called all the story time of what might be. And it's fascinating to me. I participate in a lot of discussions along those lines. But I would have thought that the stock market would have had a very rough year this year. And here I'm sitting here along all sorts of things and making good money. So I try to separate those two sides to my brain and keep them separate.
1: That's very well taken. What would make you say to yourself, you know what, this is an environment where nothing seemingly is working, right? where your signals or your Approach is just sort of getting whipped around. Is there sort of a trigger that makes you step back from markets and just not play at all?
2: Well, if there was one great test, it would have been the 103% I made during COVID year 2020. I didn't step back from anything. A lot of people did. I just came in every day and ran the same darn indicators and strategies that I'm running right now. And there was a lot of movement in the market. It was fairly scary, I would say. But I managed my risk. My position sizes went down because the volatility went up. Still picked up some good profits, you know, to the downside during COVID crash and went right around. And everybody said, oh, we got to have a double bottom. It's got to be a W. And we got to test the bottom before we can go higher. And guess what? It didn't. It just turned around, went straight up with a V bottom. My indicators kicked in one more time. I flipped from short to long. And that was even more profitable to the upside than it was to the downside. And you add it all up and I'm up 103%. Best year of my life, probably. And I didn't do anything different than what I'm doing right now. So to answer your question, I don't, you really see a lot of, for me to shut everything down, it would almost require the government taking over all the markets and saying there will be no price movement anymore. That would probably be the Only thing that could happen that would cause me to stop doing what I'm doing. I'm sure as
1: you as you progressed throughout your career and built your firm and built your name, there were some, yeah, like a better way of saying it, gurus. Although I always say there's no gurus, only cycles. But you know, certain people, certain ways of thinking that you gravitated towards that you thought were kind of among the best in the fields when you were younger. Who were some of the people that you practised heavily, just in terms of their market
2: thoughts? They. uh, It wasn't so much market thoughts as trading and strategy thoughts. Uh, I really like the way Larry Height, Mint, who I looked up to as one of the leaders in trend following and risk and volatility management in the early years. He was in the first Market Wizards book. And I've since had some conversations with him and wrote a little piece for his latest book. And I respected his comment that he, at Mint, tried to make every trade that they did an equal bet size. And I took that to mean to use the risk of the trade to size the position. And I wrote a whole book, Successful Traders Size Their Positions, Why and How, on nothing but position sizing. It's simple math. It has far more effect, according to studies that I've done, than your buy and sell indicator will. Because if you screw up your position sizing, you don't balance things out, you're going to have one position contributing too much to the return or the risk of your portfolio and other things being immaterial. That's just not a portfolio. That's a few select positions that are driving the the train and the rest are going along for the ride. And when you get it right, then everything can contribute to both risk and return. And then you're going to be optimizing your performance a little bit better and i've done studies after studies that show that improves your results or a return to risk ratio basically i would say and i'm a big return to risk ratio guy i i know there's other traders out there that are very return oriented and they'll suffer through whatever swings they have in their equity curve in order to hit the big number every year. And they do it frequently and good for them. That's not me. I know myself well enough to where I'm just not going to trade that way. And I'm more of the methodical, just kind of keep the equity curve pretty smooth, keep the return to risk ratios high. And I know that position sizing really affects that ability to keep that return to risk ratio high. So that's why I concentrate so much on it. And I think that, If you look at the markets we've had recently with a lot of sideways, I think it's really important when markets get very quiet, you can build bigger positions. When they finally break out and decide they want to go long or they want to go short, you're already there with a nice big position and you exploit it.
1: A question that was DM to me to ask you, this is the wording there, I know he doesn't necessarily invest in individual stocks, but if he did, how would he hedge earnings gaps? Recently, some stocks have had earnings gaps of, Negative twenty percent. How do you play earnings, or would you just exit prior and then re-enter if earnings are positive? How do you think about earnings when it comes to risk management and stock price action?
2: Yeah, I would. One of the, the classic reason why I don't do individual stocks anymore is I get really tired of you know waking up and watching Stuart Vardy on uh, Fox Business and having him report that you know X Y Z just opened up down twenty percent because they missed their earnings. There's just no really easy way to deal with that unless you want to get into a lot of manual sort of option hedging of some sort, maybe do an in the money option if you're not sure which way it's going to go and be able to blow out of it when the market does open. And when you're hedged, you won't enjoy the upside or the downside. That's the point of being hedged. But then as soon as you know which way the risk is going, you can take the hedge off and enjoy the ride after that. You know, the, the earnings things, I mean, they can go both ways. I mean, you can also, if you're looking to pick up that 20% move to the upside, it can go in your favor. So it's just uh, about the only way I've ever thought I would, if I ever get back in the stock someday, and, and I may down the road, I would probably diversify the heck out of it. First of all, I'd have to be very automated. I'd probably want to have maybe 40 Stocks in my portfolio or something on that order. So get every position down to, you know, two, two and a half percent of my portfolio or less, so that any of one of those 20% moves in an individual issue would not really affect me a whole lot. And aren't I sort of doing my own ETF if I do that? So why not just use ETFs? Solves the problem. Doesn't require me to do as much work. And I am basically would rather be out hitting golf balls than, than sitting here in front of the desk working all day. So that's kind of my attitude towards the thing.
1: Question I've been trying to think through how to ask it, but
2: how good of a winemaker are you? Okay, I use kits and I, I get juice shipped in from various places, whether it be California, Washington state, or even Italy. And then it usually will come with the recommended yeast, and I supplement my own oak that I get from various supply stores that are for wine hobbyists. And then I make 30 bottles of juice at the start, and it probably works out to about 27 to 28 by the time I get done because you lose some in what's called the dregs in the bottom of the fermentation tanks and things. And uh, this last batch of Amarone I made was quite tasty. And the
1: last thing you want to deal with is earnings gaps. When you're making when you're making wine, because you know, that'll throw off everything that you're doing. Okay, obviously I'm joking when I say all this. The um, the uh, what I'm curious, just you know, again, it sounds like you've had a successful career. You've done well for yourself. Why even go through
2: writing you know, another book? I mean, it's quite an endeavor to do that to you. Yeah, be yeah. I don't know if those of you out there that have ever written a book, but you. Barely get paid minimum wage doing it. It's not an economic thing. I guess why I did it was I get a lot of questions from people all over the world about trading. They're just starting out. They want my advice. I've been around fifty years, so you know I may know a couple of things. And I thought, you know I'm starting to see through answering all these people's questions, that I could make an outline. That would involve answering questions on position sizing, questions on the psychology of trading, questions on different types of indicators, questions on how to mesh multi-strategy approaches together, and the mentality of how I went from buying a growth stock mutual fund back when I was 12 years old and a paper boy and putting away my $10 a week into a Fidelity mutual fund, all the way up to where I am today at all the different Uh aha moments along the way that hopefully would inspire new traders to also have similar aha moments and say, you know, that makes a lot of sense. Why didn't I think of that? And then hopefully it helps their trading. And it sort of becomes a book that is a bit of my legacy that I can leave behind well after I'm gone. People can still look at that and get some interesting concepts out of it. So that's kind of why I decided to sit down and start that project, and it took uh, a good year and a half. It's not an easy thing to write a book that extensive, and it covers everything I know about trading from, including the kitchen sink, I guess you could say. It's got everything in there that I know how to do, and so hopefully it's well-received. The audio book, I'm in the middle. I'm about halfway through uh, revealing it to prove it, so it should be out any day now. And the the actual book, the print copy book, is bestseller in four categories on Amazon. And he received a lot of wonderful reviews. So I've been happy with the way it's gone out and hopefully helped some people.
1: Yeah, now somebody once told me that writing a book is like having a very time-intensive and expensive business card. Because <laughs> I mean, to your point, it's really it's hard to make yeah, money on it. But yeah, I'm sure if you enjoy it and you help other people with that work, it's, yeah. It's sort of the self-actualization side of Maslow's hierarchy of needs, to some extent.
2: I uh, guess I, I can tell you right now that it's a net negative financially to have that book out there for me. I paid more to get it all pulled together, to go through the publishing and get everything in place. The various consultants that have to do certain things to pull everything off. I'm approaching break even. Everybody, please
1: help me get past break even. By checking the book out, obviously. All um,
2: in the end, it will not change my life one way or the other too much, so financially speaking. so Yeah, but
1: yeah, I'll tell you what, it's, it is legacy to some extent, right? I mean, yeah, it, it is. It's a type of art in a way. My father wrote two books and you yeah, tried to kind of honor his memory, republishing his 1990 book on intermarket analysis. Yeah, and there's parts of that book that me as his son, yeah, I read through it and I can hear his voice, right, when, yeah. when I read through it. So I think there's a lot of merit to that. Tom, for those who want to crack more of your thoughts, where would you point them to?
2: Well, Twitter is the largest chunk of followers that I've got, which is around 51,000 or something these days. And that's just at Basso underscore Tom and make sure you look for the blue check. There is a ton of scammers out there trying to modify my name and my handle and try and scam people with cryptocurrency scams and all sorts of stuff. Never, ever invest in anything over, the, over a direct message on Twitter. Facebook's second up and LinkedIn after that. In Facebook, you'd want to follow my page, which is enjoytheride.world. And on LinkedIn, I think it's my name, Tom Basso. Just search for that, you'll find me. Enjoytheride.world, my website is probably a great resource for traders because I've got all sorts of, all the interviews I've ever done All the books I've ever written, video series, webinars that have been recorded. There's just a ton of information, how I hedge, the indicators that I use. I try to put it all there so that if somebody sends me an email these days and says, how do you do your hedging? I just put the link to the hedging page and say, it's all there. Let me know if you have any questions. And I don't hear from them again because it's all explained. So it saves me a lot of time. So that's kind of the easiest way. Enjoy the ride, dot world, not dot com. That was taken by some bicycle shop someplace.
1: Fair enough. Everybody, please make sure you follow Tom. Check out his work. Again, this will be in the podcast under lead lag live. And hopefully I will see you all. Thank you, Tom. Appreciate
3: it. All right, Michael. Good to be with you. The content in this program is for informational purposes only. You should not construe any information or other material as investment, financial, tax, or other advice. The views expressed by the participants are solely their own. A participant may have taken or recommended any investment position discussed, but may close such position or alter its recommendation at any time without notice. Nothing contained in this program constitutes a solicitation, recommendation, endorsement, or offer to buy or sell any securities or other financial instruments in any jurisdiction. Please consult your own investment or financial advisor for advice related to all investment decisions. Don't forget to follow at Lead Lag Report on X, Instagram, Threads, and YouTube, and check out the Lead Lag Report at www.leadlagreport.com. Use promo code PODCAST30 for two weeks free and 30% off to get access to award-winning research and anticipate stock market crashes, corrections, and bear markets.